exciting season finale of Heavy Metal 101. John! John! OMG, right? It's the season finale. Ten episodes. Are you just overwhelmed with the gravity of this moment? Yeah, episode ten. Woo, go team! So, so engaged. You're an invaluable part of our team. I really feel like I bring something special to the show that really wouldn't exist if you took me out of it. Possibly. <laughs> I'm pretty freaking excited. Not only are we talking about quite possibly the greatest heavy metal band of all time, Black Sabbath, today, but we've got our very first Heavy Metal 101 guest to help us celebrate the season finale. John, you've got to be at least somewhat pumped to chat with the wonderful Nolan Stoltz, no? I am so thrilled to have the opportunity to talk with an actual expert. I realize this is a rare opportunity for you, so I'm happy that you get, you'll get the exposure to how the other half live. You know, you're a pretty self-centered guy. Have you ever interviewed anyone before? I have for my musical theater podcast. I've held several interviews. Oh! You know, I have to admit, I, well, I have listened to that podcast, and I strongly endorse it. Musical Minutes with John and John, which some of you with bad taste in music should totally listen to. But you like I, musicals. Don't pretend I that you don't. Up. I'm a metal guy. You're ruining my cred. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't I haven't heard any of the interview ones actually. I well, the interviews are good. Yeah, I'm sure. We talk to people who actually know what they're talking right, about. Right, right. That's the difference. That right. can be a real difference maker, I find. Okay, well, I think this will be totally fascinating. So, shall we do this thing? Let's do it. I'd like to introduce our incredibly special guest, a brilliant scholar, composer, author, and all-around swell guy, Nolan Stoltz. Hi, Nolan, and welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We honestly could not be more excited to have you. For those who don't know this, Nolan is the author of the indispensable 2017 book, Experiencing Black Sabbath, A Listener's Companion, which I very highly recommend to all of our listeners. You can find it pretty much anywhere online where books are sold, so you should all pause this episode. You should go and check our show notes. We have a specific link. Click on it buy that bad boy, read it six times, and then come back and enjoy our delightful chat. And for the record, Nolan, my copy of the book has a permanent spot next to my bed, and I refer to it quite often. So thank you for writing. It's great. Thank you. A little background on Nolan. Otherwise, he is an associate professor of music at University of South Carolina, upstate, is also a composer who is currently on sabbatical, lucky bastard, uh, he is using this time to travel historic Route 66 in order to generate inspiration for a new orchestral composition, the Route 66 Suite. Nolan, you clearly do all the cool stuff. Any other kick-ass projects you've got in the works currently? I'm still continuing my Black Sabbath research whenever I have time. <laughs> but most <laughs> of my time has been on the road. Sure. But at the end of August, I'll be presenting at the University of Oxford in England. Ooh. And uh, the title of the paper is The Origin of Progressive Metal Lyrics in Black Sabbath's Music. I'm also working on something called Black Sabbath's Mutually Exclusive 2 in three-part forms. That's definitely a, a theory, the theory side of me there. And so I'm working on that, develop that into a book chapter. For the book version, I plan to expand it to include other bands like Metallica, for instance, the song One, you know how it's in two oh, parts? Yeah. Sure. And I call it mutually exclusive because no material 
comes back at a certain point and black sabbath does that quite a bit actually uh-huh. oh yeah yeah definitely nolan and i we have known each other since way back in the myspace days i believe this is where we first virtually <laughs> oh, met boy. we were part of the first generation of virtual pals in the 21st century and we did get to meet in the real world i think it was like 2007 ish Right. We have we both Nolan and I were performed by the amazing guitarist Aaron Largent Kaplan and uh, shout out to Aaron if he's listening we love you Aaron yes and that was fantastic we both had contemporary lullabies performed on guitar at that program which was super fun Nolan you had a chance to meet and chat with my delightful co-host John briefly before we started recording but I should now remind everybody that John is here as well John say hi to the nice people hello John how you doing I'm I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> John, John is alive, but not well, I think, is the, the way things go. I mean, you know, physically, I'm perfectly healthy. Mentally, it's a, it's a busy time right now. <laughs> I'll remind everybody, in case we have some new listeners at this point, that I am Eric. I am our so-called heavy metal expert on this podcast. And John is our heavy metal newbie. We're 10 episodes deep now. So, John, I assume you know a little bit about heavy metal now, right? Yeah, I think that's a safe assumption. Yeah, you know more than like my parents do. Well, they've listened to every episode, so they know as much as Oh, actually, that's true. All right. So you and my parents know the exact same amount of that. So our primary goal for today's Heavy Metal 101 podcast season finale is to end this thing with a bang. And we're going to pick up where we left off on our first episode. And we're going to trace the 1970s career of the great Black Sabbath from after their eponymous debut, which we've already discussed, through the departure of Ozzy Osbourne at the end of that decade. Are you guys unbelievably excited? Oh, yes. This is my wheelhouse right here. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Let's get us cooking on the whole Black Sabbath saga at this point. So as I mentioned, we're going to pick up from where we left off on our first episode of Heavy Metal 101, which was the release of the debut album. We talked about the public response, all that stuff. And in this discussion, for the sake of organizational clarity, we're basically just going to go album by album, do sort of an album-sized chunk at a time. We're going to begin with the most classic of Black Sabbath classics. That would be 1970s Paranoid. A couple of foundational details before we chat. Paranoid was originally released on September 18th of 1970, was recorded between June 16th and 21st. So unlike the debut, it wasn't recorded in just one day, but this is not the labor of endless hours spent in the studio. Black Sabbath were working very fast and furious at this point in their career in their studio work. Like the debut, Paranoid was produced by Roger Bain. It's probably worth noting Paranoid reached number one on the UK charts and made it all the way to number 12 in the US. So this was the album that definitively made Black Sabbath into superstars. And last but not least, just a reminder, we haven't talked about this in a bit, the classic 70s Sabbath lineup was Ozzy Osbourne, vocals, Tony Iommi, guitar, Geezer Butler, bass, and Bill Ward, drums. So Nolan, what can you tell us about this extraordinary masterwork, Paranoid? The first thing I would say, uh, if, if you were to show a non-Sabbath person a representative work, you would give them the album Paranoid, if you're, if you're going to choose an album. Yeah, you know, I totally agree. You know, and then they would hear and go, oh, I've heard that song. Oh, I've heard that song. Yeah, and so that very thing that was my exact experience. But there's also like other Sabbath, there's a lot of depth to the deeper tracks, right? You've got Planet Caravan, you know, this very non-metal song. If we say this sounds like metal, that sounds like metal. This does not sound like metal, right? 
you can't assume that a metal band is going to have all of their repertoire to sound like heavy metal. And you hear them you know, experimenting with some jazz sounds. You hear Tony Iommi, uh, his guitar solo, very jazz-like. Mm-hmm. Paranoid, the blues seem to go away. That's very true. They, so they were purposely trying to subvert the blues at this time. They were trying to move away from the blues, even though it was clearly their roots. Uh, okay, like the song Electric Funeral, that uses, the, the riff itself uses the, the minor blues scale. But the way they approach that flat five scale degree, it's very indicative of this heavier style with it, this metal style. So right, it's evil yeah, instead of bluesy. Exactly. Yeah. Paranoid is such an extraordinary achievement. I love the debut. I think the debut album is incredible. And these two albums, these are both released in 1970. But to me, just so much better realized what Sabbath is that is no longer the 1960s blues boom thing. You know what you're saying? Taking away, yeah. you know, using maybe some of the materials and trappings of the blues, but not in a way that is at all nostalgic for early American blues. Tony made a great comment in an interview, and I think it was like March of 1970. So mind you, only a month after the first album was released, he says something like uh, that our first album was representative of us nine months ago. We recorded it six months ago. So they were aware of how quickly they were developing. Right. And now Paranoid, yes, it was released in September, but it wasn't released in the States until 1971. So there's a little bit of a lag here in, you know, in 2022 terms. That's a long, I mean, it's a very short time, but for, for them, that's very yes, quick. definitely. John, any thoughts that you had on your complete immersion into the beautiful world of Paranoid? Like Nolan said, this was an album where, as someone who was not explicitly familiar with Black Sabbath, many of the songs I was aware of just because of how pervasive they are within our popular culture. But as you two have been saying, this feels like the album that sounds like what I expected the band Black Sabbath to sound like compared to their first album. Yeah, Paranoid is definitely unambiguously completely a heavy metal album, I think, by any any at least modern standards. In 1970, nobody knew what the hell heavy metal was. But if you look back on it, you look at Black Sabbath, the debut, and you say there are some definitively heavy metal songs, and then there are songs that sound like Cream. Right, that sound very much part of the late 60s British rock scene. To me, with accepting Planet Caravan, which is kind of the exception that proves the rule, it's just an album that screams, this is heavy metal, this is the defining template. And that's what everyone, everyone seems to have ran with after that. Yes, genre or style defining. Yeah, yeah. All right, before we move on, any other thoughts, important paranoid details anyone's got? Maybe the title, Rat Salad. Everyone, no one ever knows what this means. It was a reference to Bill's hair being not combed. They, they would always call him smelly and always make fun of him for his. Oh, and so, him and his nib. <laughs> yeah, right. So, yeah, that, that was revealed in a, an interview at, of the time and has been buried in a newspaper for years. And I came across it. I'm like, ah, there's the title. Where the title come from? So I gave that in a talk I gave uh, in Birmingham, actually, at the Home of Metal conference. Ooh, that's amazing. Yeah. So just a little little tidbit to put in there. Like, people have been wondering for years, what does that mean? So that's what it's messy hair. (laughs) That's what we here refer to as a fun fact. 
beautiful thing. We love it. Definitely a fun fact. All right. So fantastic. We're going to continue along and discuss the heavy metal gut punch. That is Sabbath's <laughs> third album, Master of Reality, which the band birthed just a few short months after Paranoid in July of 1971. So those guys were some busy, busy bees. Master of Reality was recorded at Island Studio in London between February and April of 1971. So we can see that the time in the studio continues to expand from album to album. This is the final album that was produced by Roger Bain. And I'm personally of the opinion that Master of Reality kind of closes off the first period of Black Sabbath artistically and that things pretty substantially change after this album. Nolan, what do you think about Master of Reality? Yes. So if Paranoid doesn't define metal, Master of Reality certainly does. <laughs> you know. Um, yeah. So one of the things, the detuning. So they were they detuned three half steps. Yeah, it's crazy. It down to, yeah. So although a lot of the parts can be played on standard tuning, because it's not like they're always playing the super low register, but there are these moments where it just... <laughs> you know, it's really, I love that gut punching. Yeah. So it's just this low sound. Yes. Yeah, so a super heavy, the, the beginning of Children in the Grave. Oh, that's the heaviest. It's the best. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And we, we should remind people that, you know, the reason Sabbath detuned, or at least the primary reason they cite for detuning, is not necessarily this artistic ideal. It's because of Tony Iommi's fingers, right? It's because he needed the strings to have a certain slackness in order to comfortably finger them, missing two of his fingertips. Yeah, yeah. But it what results is just this incredibly heavy sound. So we want to listen to a little bit of music. What we're going to do is choose one song from a couple of different albums. I believe you wanted to talk about Children of the Grave specifically, Nolan, is that correct? Yeah, let's do let's do that one. Okay. So we're going to we're going to take a break from our delightful yammering we're going to play some music, and when we come back, we'll discuss a little bit of this just intense, glorious, early heavy metal, Children of the Grave, from Black Sabbath's Master of Reality. Hello, lovely people. If you are listening to the sound of my voice, then you are listening to the version of this podcast for which we do not have the rights to play this fantastic piece of music, Black Sabbath's Children of the Grave. We do, however, have a link in the show notes, so we strongly advise you pause the podcast, click on the link, and check it out, and then rejoin our conversation as we discuss this amazing piece of music. See you soon! We are back. Incredible, incredible song. One of my personal favorite songs, literally of all time, not just the Sabbath, and probably after the album Paranoid one of the first Sabbath songs that I became deeply obsessed with. Nolan, what can you tell us about Children of the Grave? This is some serious early heavy metal energy and vigor and all that. Yeah, that, that opening riff, those repeated low notes, that's that low C sharp rather than an E. So it's a even lower register than, well, you would really hear on bands play of that time. Now it's become a lot more common to detune guitars or even use seven string guitars in heavy metal. But for that time, that was quite low and heavy. But lots of lots of colors in that song. You've got the the timpani roll. You've got that there's a 
in the bridge there, there's like a some sort of organ. It might be a harmonium. I've never been able to figure that out. I noted that as well, that it's just very early Black Sabbath keyboard usage, and it's just timbral. They're just kind of doubling lines. If you listen to it on the headphones, it really comes out. It's so nice. I assume it was like a Mellotron or something. I thought it might be a Mellotron, but I'm not quite convinced. Now, if you scour YouTube, you can find isolated tracks. And so I highly recommend listening to Children of the Grave isolated tracks and other ones from this album, by the way. And so you can hear it and you can hear like the key clicks and the, I don't know, I'm I'm going to guess harmonium. (laughs) So the first heavy metal harmonium. (laughs) (laughs) It's just, that's a monumental moment. Yeah, it's such an amazing song. And although in some respects, I like the albums that follow a little bit more. I think they have higher highs but especially Paranoid and Master of Reality, I just think they're perfect albums. And like the songs are just so solid across both. They're, like, they're so stylistically clear and they're so well rendered. Really every song on Master of Reality, I think just absolutely kills. Although Children of the Grave is probably my favorite on the album. And I also, we didn't talk about Embryo, but of course it's got a pretty groovy introduction to it as well. Yeah, so you kind of have like this almost medieval sounding, you know, as if it were like some medieval instrument or something <laughs> old, like early classical music. Right? right. It's especially true of Master of Reality, right? Tony's idea of light and darkness, kind of like balancing out albums with these yes. uh, heavy metal songs and then relieved by these sort of neoclassical instrumentals and whatnot. Yes. So dynamics was very important to this band. So there's almost like two Sabbaths, I feel. I feel like there was like the studio version of Sabbath where they, they use this, the, the album as their canvas. So like dynamically, like maybe live, they didn't have huge. I mean, they were just known as extremely loud live band. But then you listen to these the albums and you have these really soft moments that they don't really do live. You know, they're not doing Planet Caravan live. They're not <laughs> doing so... Yeah, so the light and shade, I think, is what Tony described it as. And yeah, you get that. Right. John, let's see, what did I give you from this album? I gave you Children of the Grave. Did I give you Sweet Leaf? Yes. Is that the other one? So that's a stone classic. What what do you think of Sweet Leaf? I mean, I I liked all three of the songs from from this album. Mm -hmm. They felt like a continuation of the language that was established. I mean, that's the main thing I think you kind of alluded to this as well as being like, if Paranoid didn't establish it, then then Master of Reality does. But Master of Reality basically doubles down with Paranoid artistic. Yeah, that's a good way to put it, doubles down. Any other Master of Reality thoughts? Moving on, we are now getting really serious and entering the second creative phase, at least in my estimation of Black Sabbath, wherein big artistic risks are taken. Ozzy Osbourne truly blossoms as a vocalist. Highs are even higher than ever, and I refer to that both artistically and in terms of the increasingly (laughs) heroic amount of drugs that they do. And lows, alas, maybe start to get a bit lower than they had previously been. I would personally argue that the next three Sabbath albums are the band's most interesting and feature some of the greatest music making of all time. So a bit of background on Volume 4. It was released on September 25th of 1972, was recorded at the Record Plant in Los Angeles. So we have American Sabbath. This is the first album made in the USA by the band. 
This album is also the first produced by the band, although really particularly by Tony Iommi. We've got the usual personnel here, but indicative of Sabbath's ever-growing artistic ambition is that on this album, Tony is credited with piano and Mellotron. Yeezer is credited with Mellotron as well. And for those who don't know, Mellotron is a keyboard from the 60s that used magnetic tape as sort of a early sampling methodology. The band is also considerably stretching out in their songwriting and overall sonic palette at this point. And John, you will actually be interested to note that this was the first Black Sabbath album that Lester Bangs our legendary and loathed Rolling Stone critic, he actually liked this one. Oh, um, look he, at him go. Yeah. He's growing. <laughs> he is growing uh, with the band. We talked uh, on our first episode, Nolan, about the rather not friendly reviews that that debut Sabbath album got, particularly from Lester Bangs. So it's kind of nice to see him evolving as a fan at this point and all that. So, Nolan, you got any exciting facts, figures, stories, pictures of cocaine consumption, like what was, what's going on with the Black Sabbath Volume 4 era? Well, if we could go back a little bit. Oh, yeah. So Volume 4, yes, it was completed in L.A., but it was actually started in London. There were two studios in London that they were using. They were already recording this back in January of 72. So like Snowblind and... Uh, a couple others and you can also hear from live recordings of this time that they have these earlier versions of the song so yes it's actually started in london but yes completed in la so i think that's one of the most misunderstood things about this album everyone said oh this is this was recorded in la yes it was and most of it was written there but it has its roots in london and so i see this as this is their first foray into experimentalism with the next with sabbath play sabbath that's their first album that they're really full on but yes it's clearly more ex- experimental than the than the earlier stuff so that's just something to say and you know there's there's some elements of the lower quality recordings and i wonder if those are the ones that were done in marquee studios yeah this is generally considered one of sabbath's less well-produced albums just sonically yeah, Geezer hates the bass sound. I tend to agree with him on that. It's just, it's, it's, there's, there's no real clarity to the sound. But on the other hand, yes, they were experimenting and trying new things. So I think it's, it's an exciting moment for the band. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it also lays a little bit of a template for the stoner metal genre that comes, you know, a little mm-hmm. bit less sonically clean. I mean, people, a lot of people love that, that sort of thing. And I, this is definitely has, has some of that working for it. And also, you know, again, the progressive elements are really just kind of starting to creep in at this point, but the the audio somewhat tempers that like it's, it's, to me, it's a really well-balanced album just sort of aesthetically because of that, you know, it's got a little push and pull. You've, you've got more complex songwriting too. You've got, there is a song on there that's in three parts. It was actually registered as three different titles. They love that. Sabbath just love that. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. So you have like these separate units, like, okay, we're in this part of the song. We, we go to this next section and never look back to previous material. It's such a different way of songwriting. It's, it's, it's almost like, no, we're not going to have a chorus. You know, <laughs> it might sound like a chorus. It might have some aspects about it, a heightened feel or something, but it's not, <laughs> they're not coming back to, material throughout the song. So you have, you got these longer compositions 
Yeah, I mean, Wheels of Confusion is eight minutes long. That's a yeah. big song. This is the album where Ozzy stops singing to riffs. The melodies really change, I think, quite a bit on, on this album. The textural layers, which were mainly about heaviness beforehand, stop being mainly about heaviness. They start to diverge a bit more. Yeah, I think they're challenging themselves musically in many ways, like you said, melodically with the vocals, the songwriting, the tempo changes. I mean, tempo changes has always been a part of their style, but they're really pushing themselves. Mm-hmm. In fact, to the point of where, you know, Bill was having trouble, you know, oh, let's do another take, let's do another take. And even finishing the album in the in in the UK, because he never quite could get a good take. This is also, I think, the album where you get kind of the first somewhat stupid Black Sabbath song. FX yeah. to me is, yeah. uh, I mean, I like, you know, we're all experimental musicians here. We like contemporary music, but it just sounds like a bunch of dudes on drugs playing around in the studio. Yeah, and that's what it was. <laughs> <laughs> that's what it was, which is fine. I mean, it's, a, you know, it's less than two minutes long. It's not a huge deal. But this phase of Sabbath is where you just start a little bit of fat starts to creep in to the, the albums in a way that you just didn't really have, I don't think, on those earlier albums. Sonically, I mean, we, although maybe the, the quality of recording isn't as strong, but the different instruments, I mean, the Mellotron, the Mellotron mm-hmm. strings, and then oh, yeah. the actual yeah. string orchestra on Laguna Sunrise. Snowblind even has strings. Right, at the end. Yeah, I think it's a double string quartet, perhaps, kind of like Eleanor Rigby was. But yeah, so it's like they're trying these new sounds. That's what I'm trying to say. Like, so timbrally speaking, we're having some new sounds, although the, the production quality isn't quite there yet. Right. Also, speaking of new sounds, changes, yeah. which is, you know, Black Sabbath have done ballads before, Planet Caravan, right. and Solitude on Master of Reality, but changes yep. is different. I mean, it's, a, it's a lovely song. I like changes just fine. But yeah, yeah. We got different. it. Tony playing piano for the first time. So, John, for you, I know I had Supernaut and Snowblind. Was that it? Yeah. Those songs kill, though. Like, I absolutely love both those songs. Do you, wait, what do you think about this? This is where in this playlist they started to lose me a little bit. Uh-huh. And it's not bad. It's not, not criticism, but it felt like the, this shift that, that we're talking about was noticeable to me, and it's not my favorite thing. <laughs> okay. I think different strokes for different reasons. Plus, it's well documented on this podcast that John has terrible taste in music. I don't like music. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, how about the percussion, says- John? Did you like all the percussion in Supernaut? There's that little breakdown in the middle. Oh, yeah, that. right. That is so cool. I love that. It's like the Latin kind of... Right. So right. that... I did. I was confused by it. But <laughs> I was on <laughs> a lot of drugs in, in a pleasant way. Like, it was one of those moments where, like, listening to it, just like, wait a minute, what just happened? Where, where did we go? Which yeah, made me yeah. smile. Well, no, I think you may make a good point because, I mean, it was experimental in the sense of they had, you know, just a box of percussion showed up in the studio and they're like, oh, fun. We should, we should do something with this. <laughs> yeah. So, yes, it's this, this step towards experimentalism. They're not quite there yet. They don't quite know what to do with these fun new toys. So were, were they asking for them or were they just, this was stuff that was in the studio and they were like, since it's here. I don't know, to be honest. I don't know the history behind that, but I do know like they were like, this, they got this box of percussion. and <laughs> Let's extend you know. Supernaut. <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, it works really well, although I believe that they never did any of that stuff live, right? So, no, no. Uh, so again, you have like the two Sabbaths. You have the live Sabbath, right. the stripped down, the heavier, super loud band. And then you have these, the, the studio version where they can use all these instruments. I mean, I would love to have a Sabbath tribute band that recreates the studio version. Like you have a whole <laughs> percussion ensemble, have a string orchestra with the guitar and do Laguna Sunrise. I mean, how cool would that be? That would be incredible. Yeah. Yeah. All the stuff that they never did live. And, you know, oh, here's another uh, super note. Okay. There's the, the riff. Okay. You hear a second guitar playing the same exact riff, a major third higher, you know, to have two guitar players on stage, you know, now you could do that with a harmonizer pedal, you know, and this 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 is a good song as a good precursor to the technology of a harmonizer pedal, because that became an aesthetic thing that people were interested in doing. Or perhaps you have cool. a keyboardist double the part. In the right, right. <laughs> right. Spoiler alert! Uh, any other volume four thoughts before we get seriously progressive? No, let's move on to classic um, album. They're they're. <laughs> The, the, their first amazing album. Oh my, look at that's a bold statement. So I always think of this next album as the writer's block album yeah. um, because I, as, a, as a creative artist, I have had serious writer's block and had to sort of deal with it. So I've always kind of related to that aspect of this album. I also occasionally think of it as the one that they wrote in the Haunted Castle, which I think is super cool as background. Sabbath attempted to start their next album in Los Angeles where they had finished volume four but those creative juices just weren't flowing and so after a fruitless month spent in los angeles the band decamped to clearwell castle in england and wrote and rehearsed sabbath bloody sabbath in the castle's dungeon this is i think by far and away their most progressive and expansive album to date it was recorded at morgan studios in london in september of 73 and was released on december 1st of 1973 it also has arguably the coolest cover of any Sabbath album. It is totally heavy metal and demonic and evil. It's just, it's so cool. So Nolan, obviously Sabbath is getting seriously prog at this point. We've got a guest artist, Rick Wakeman from Yes. We've got a conductor and arranger in Will Malone. We've got the Phantom Fiddlers credited. So I feel like we're entering into some serious you-friendly territory at this point. <laughs> uh, what, what, are, what are your thoughts on Sabbath Bloody Sabbath? Okay, where do I begin? Well, I, I think this is where the experimentalism of volume four as perhaps a learning process comes into fruition. And I think this is where they, this is where they're writing their most sophisticated music. You don't have a song like FX <laughs> on here, right? Right. You have a more sophisticated use of the orchestra. And of course, we got to credit Will Malone for that. So not just using the orchestra as some background string parts, but they're actually providing a counterpoint contrapuntal line to the melody. So some interesting stuff happening. With right. The it seems to be just timbre. I think I feel like at this point most of the experiments were timbral, and now it becomes really songwriting orchestra. Yes. Yeah. But even with the songwriting of volume four, like I said, yeah, the expansive true. forms, but now they're they're using these expansive forms. Let's just talk about this. The title track for a moment. This is one we, we should play. Here are some things to listen for. Oh, oh, I like it. All right, let's do that. Okay. So you've got this opening riff, and then you know, it's heavy, obviously heavy, right? One of the heaviest riffs that they have. 
And then it goes to this softer section and you have these acoustic instruments, right? The acoustic guitar in there. And then you have Ozzy singing this. Look, Ozzy does not get enough credit for coming up with excellent melodies. Mm -hmm. He's kind of going down the extensions of a jazz chord. Like it has almost like a jazz-like melody. And then we get to the middle section, really, really heavy. I think this right. is maybe the heaviest moment in all of Yes. But going back to what Tony Iommi said, the light and shade, that section wouldn't sound so heavy if it didn't have that sort of jazz-like softer bridge. Right, and, right. Whoa. I wrote that I wrote that in my notes that this song is like a single consolidated version of Iommi's ideas that he was doing on like an album basis before this. But now yes. this, this very song has light, darkness, heaviness jazz like it's all integrated into one yes thing. absolutely so cool i also think one of ozzy's best vocal performances. oh yeah just, oh yeah whew. all right so let's hear the song sabbath bloody sabbath well hello there person listening to this not on spotify which is totally fine but unfortunately that does mean that in order to hear this incredible song sabbath bloody sabbath from the album of the same name you are going to need to pause the podcast check the show notes and click on the link or find the song however other way you might like after you've given it a good listen come on back and join the conversation and now back to your regularly scheduled podcast I don't know how I'll edit this, but suffice to say, the three of us are just completely nerding out about how incredible this song is <laughs> <laughs> right now. But no, like any specific things that you want to share post-listening with the audience about Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath, the song. Tony once said, uh, commented much later, like, we kept detuning and Ozzy kept on singing higher. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so true. This is where we hear... Ozzy in his very upper register, which he couldn't do later in life. And you couldn't really expect anybody to sing that high later in life anyways. And so, yeah, so you have this, this huge register difference between Ozzy singing really high and the riffs being super low. Vocally speaking, I'm a little bit of a Dio guy as far as Black Sabbath is concerned. I mean, I love Ronnie James Dio. And so I'm one of those people. I think of, of Ozzy generally, I think of him in my head as more icon than singer. Holy crap. When Ozzy was on, on this album and on Sabotage, those vocal performances are so incredible. Listen to live recordings from the Sabotage tour. Ozzy is on point. He is yeah. at his height as a performer. John, Sabbath, bloody Sabbath, what do you think? We've talked a lot about the detuning, and it's in a song like this that the term heavy metal makes sense to me. And it's because of exactly what you guys just were, were talking about with that separation of the registration, that that lowness feels like at a gut level much heavier than anything else you would traditionally be hearing. Yeah, it's got real weight. Yeah. It's also worth noting the serious palm muting that Tony yes. is using. Yeah, it's it's the combination of the the low register and the palm muting that's really giving it that sound. And you mentioned, yeah. John, the term heavy metal. This was the time where the term heavy metal emerged, 1973 into 1974. Makes sense. Nobody's going to mistake this for hard rock. I mean, this is something right. very different. It's, it's interesting to me because so Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath, obviously is the most by far progressive Sabbath album to date, but on this album, 
it, you have moments that are the heaviest as well, you know, that they yes. That's why Sabbath manages not to lose me in any way at this point, because they're <laughs> they're doing both things so well, right. getting heavier yeah. and getting smarter and more expansive. Okay, so yes. to transition to, I think what both of us agree is probably Sabbath's artistic peak, kind of the, the final unarguably classic 70s Sabbath album. That would be 1975's Sabotage. This is wow. Sabbath. I just got legend. chills. Ooh. <laughs> That's, uh, Sabbath's okay. legendary Raging Against the Business Side of Music album. They were in the midst of a very serious legal mess with their former manager, Patrick Meehan. And this album finds them in rather a foul mood, which I love, and which I think really works to their benefit. Um, oh, yeah. To my mind, Sabotage is maybe arguably a tiny bit less consistent than some of the earliest albums. I would argue that this is um, with like maybe a tiny bit of like fat on it, artistically speaking, but it's definitely got the highest of highs. Sabotage was recorded in February through March of 1975. It was released on July 28th of that year. As with the prior release, it was recorded at Morgan Studios in London. This album is super duper heavy, but it also increases many of the progish tendencies we've seen. We've got Will Malone back doing choral and orchestral arranging. Iomi is credited on this album with guitars, piano, synthesizer, organ, and harp. And even though the guys may have been grumpy, they were clearly having a lot of studio fun on this album, which also provides what I would describe as the founding moment of thrash metal, which I think is super cool. So Nolan, what are your thoughts on Sabotage? Uh, yeah, well, I would agree that this is their last sort of masterpiece album. This is at the height of their performance and songwriting. How about I read you a, a passage from an email that Ozzy sent me? Oh, my God. I would love that very much. <laughs> so this was sent in d December, right after the book was released. And I'm thinking it's like, oh, it's a email from a student. <laughs> this is right after I posted final grades. I'll just read this. Uh, it says, Nolan, I just wanted to let you know that I received a copy of your book and was so impressed. The book is very well researched and included some information like what you wrote about the track, Am I Going Insane Radio, that is not generally known to anyone outside the band. Anyway, great job. I'm sure that Tony, Geezer, and Bill would love to receive copies of your book as well. God bless Ozzy Osbourne. I'm assuming so you're uh, saving that one for life. That was like page one of my 10-year application. <laughs> no, no. no, it was really cool. What a sweet thing that he did. He, you know, he didn't have to do that, but he... Right. That's amazing. So that was really nice. Um, it's fucking cool is what that is. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so, you know, Am I Going Insane Radio, That's that was something that Ozzy was originally thinking about for his own project so this early in their career they're already thinking oh should i do a solo album so you get you know these songs that it's not just tony writing the music you know it's everybody's coming up with ideas and, mm -hmm. actually i have a question for you you might be able to answer this yeah. hole in the sky incredible open this unbelievable song is the ending a mistake the ending gets me every time where it just sort of stops and suddenly don't start too late, hits in. Like, I, I always do a double take. 
<laughs> oh, I think it's very purposeful. I think it's that light and shade. It's like you have this super loud, right? Hole in the sky. And then all of the volume drops. I think it's supposed to trick the listener into like turning up the volume. <laughs> And symptom comes in and hits you. Do we have a Haydn-esque trick going on here? <laughs> no, I think it's exactly what they're doing. I think that's, so they have a surprise sudden drop in volume. And then when it comes to the next track, right. in, so yeah, that's which, what I think they're doing. And, and then that next track, of course, is symptom of the universe, which is like oh. about as iconic a moment as you could possibly get in Santa. Oh yeah. I'm actually curious because I, you know, I haven't listened to the totality of, of these albums. We've talked a lot about their construction within the songs. I'm curious if you can share a little bit, elaborate kind of about what we're talking about now, but how they envision structuring the entire albums and how, what, if anything, you know about their thought process in terms of working on song orders and figuring out what would be good for one album versus another. And then that sort of bigger scale picture that for me, I feel like, as a society, we're starting to lose in our world where people just listen to like a single song off of a release or people don't even release albums. They just say, here's my song and then go away. Wondering if you have thoughts. I don't know enough about their choice for song order and how they, they, I've never read any interviews about this. I have seen some track lists in the order in which they recorded the songs and stuff, but some of it has to do with just the, the length of the LP. Like you only have a certain amount of minutes on each side. So I think their hands were a little bit tied. And I suspect that they didn't plan very well, to be honest. They were writing songs and this is what they are because you know that's how the song Paranoid came about. They're like, hey guys, we need like about three more minutes or whatever. So write a single and you look. Now they claim that they weren't writing a single, but if you actually look at the, the studio log, it says single <laughs> in that place. So we know that's not true. <laughs> so they knew they had to write a, a short song because, hey, the album's not long enough. But I think uh, as far as this situation of like, oh, we, this is a lot loud song and we need the soft. I think that was very particular. Mm -hmm. But as far as actual placement, I don't know. I think that side A is basically perfect with the exception of that weird transition we talked about. The B side, like Super Tsar, which I know they open their live concerts with quite a lot. I don't know why that song doesn't open the album, but it's very weird where it placed like in the middle of side two as it is. Like, I don't quite understand that tracking decision. I thought you were going to say that was the, the fat. I'm not totally opposed to the notion of that as, as the fat. I just think that that song... If that song was an opener, I think it would be a, just a really wacky good time. I put in my notes, wacky and fun. It probably should have opened the album. It feels a little random here. Those are my notes. Mm -hmm. I think it's an instance of Tony being in charge. So this is a song that he wrote, or piece rather, that he wrote at home. Yeah, so, he really composed this as like a, on keyboards. Yeah, so he had a Mellotron at home. And so that's where he kind of got the idea for the, the choir, right? And his wife at the time played harp. So they had a harp at the house. He did play harp on the album, by the way. Oh, that he was did not? No, no, that was a, okay. a session player. But he did write it, compose it on the harp. Uh, and so 
I, I feel like this is Tony taking charge and being very proud of his composition, and, and that's where it gets its uh, appearance on the album. I have to uh, say, but, this was not one of the songs on the playlist that I listened to, and, and learning that harp was a part of this album is very interesting for me to hear right this moment. So, yeah, I think I thought about putting this on the playlist just because it's it's the Black Sabbath orchestra piece with choir, no less, but I, I did And there's a story about Ozzy walking into Morgan Studios, and there's this choir, and then he, and he walks next door thinking he was in the wrong studio. <laughs> So clearly there is a lack of communication of like, hey, I'm doing this, right? So Tony taking charge. He always kind of was charged, but it's becoming clearer that he's the top dog. Right. The other thing that can't not be mentioned about Sabotage, Megalomania and The Rit, the two sort of side closers are Oof. huge and just both unbelievably good. Like those are yes. right up there at the tip top of Sabbath's rig. It's the height of their songwriting. Ozzy just sounds so pissed off. In the oh god so yeah great. so the, the the anger towards management started earlier so on sabbath buddy sabbath the song sabbath buddy sabbath also killing yourself to live right killing yourself to live totally so that was some lyrical content that continued on and of course the name of the album too sabotage you know they're kind of referring to patrick and or just the really the businesses well megalomania right right so all of this yeah there's a lot of anger towards management and boy yes do you hear that in Ozzy's voice mm-hmm. oh. all right any other sabotage thoughts before we well um yeah so we get some keyboard and, and just different sounds on these last couple albums right mm-hmm. and then we're getting even more of it on sabotage to the point where they go on tour and they hire a keyboardist so they mm-hmm. hire a guy named Jez Woodruff who's also from Birmingham so he started uh, on the Sabotage tour. Yes. Ah, so okay. he did not play on the album, but to essentially cover some of these parts that were on the album and also to thicken up the sound while they're playing. So like you've got Tony playing solos, the rhythm guitar then drops out in the live version. So now you have him playing keyboard, some riffs. But, but correct me if I'm wrong, he plays off stage, no? Yes. So they had him off stage. That's so sad. It's really sad. And there's some really rude interviews where people will ask, oh, so Ozzy, why why did you have him off stage? And be like, oh, because he's ugly. Oh, my God. (laughs) Was he ugly? I don't know what Jez looked like. I don't think so. I mean, I just, I think it's Ozzy just being funny or trying to be funny. And God, it's just so rude. I mean, and, and, and especially going forward, right? On, I mean, spoiler alert, but on the next album, he's like one of the principal songwriters, isn't he? Yes, and not credited either. Yeah, wow. So they're on tour. So Jez is with them on tour. And so he and Tony are coming up with ideas uh, in the hotel room or whatever. And then into songwriting sessions, Jez is in there essentially, you know, playing some chords on the piano and Tony's coming up with ideas. They're working together. So keyboards ends up being an important part of technical ecstasy, and I'll, I'll, I'll let you take it from there. All right, so let's let's us transition to this final phase of 70s Sabbath. I think this has been telegraphed pretty well. I'm going to just say it right now, just so the context is clear. I am not personally a huge fan of either of Black Sabbath's final two albums of the 70s. 
And so anyone who is a fan of those albums should take any opinions I express with a grain of salt. And if you love those albums, I say more power to you. I suspect from chats that you and I have had, Nolan, that we're maybe be in a little bit of disagreement about some of this, but I think that's just lovely. We have definitely officially reached the era of what you might call prog Sabbath. I think in your book, though, you call jazz Sabbath. Am I correct about that? Yeah. But I think you got you call you start prog Sabbath with, I think, volume four which makes a certain amount of sense and then i think you shift in the next, next I, chapter jazz seven well the albums were i was had to do two albums per chapter mm-hmm. so i called the fifth and sixth prog sabbath right uh and i called this jazz sabbath well i call it jazz sabbath and ozzy's departure because by the time we get to never say die the jazz elements are more prevalent oh yes so yeah. that's it's more of a comment on Never Say Die and Ozzy leaving more so than jazz. But there is, you know, jazz has a jazz background. So mm-hmm. he was in a fusion band before he was in Sabbath. Right. I mean, so this is the point where the progressive tendencies we've seen on these last few albums, they tend to sort of start, they start to take center stage over the heavy metal side. These albums, with some exceptions, but these albums are generally a lot less heavy, I think, than, than a lot oh. of the other albums. Oh, for sure. Um, yeah. And and uh, as you just mentioned, basically, the this entire stretch of albums is Ozzy sort of with one foot out the door or sometimes literally out the door, right? Between yeah, the albums. Yeah. And I think that has a lot to do with, with what's going on. So the first of this final 70s period, that would be 1976's Technical Ecstasy, which the band recorded in sunny Miami, Florida in Criteria Studios. As with all these Latter-day albums, the production is credited to Sabbath as a band, but apparently Tony was really left on the hook for the production on this album. Additionally, all the songs but one are credited to the entire band, but you have a solo credit it's all right to Bill Ward. And as we've already mentioned too, we get a really and pretty much a new member, even if he's only semi-credited as such, and that would be keyboardist Gerald Jez Woodrow. Last thing I will note by way of introduction to kind of tie this into the Heavy Metal 101 episodes past, we are now at 1976. Punk has emerged. And this is that period where the veteran heavy metal and hard rock artists were very much artistically challenged and uncertain of their footing. We see a pretty serious drop off in Black Sabbath's popularity with this album, which peaked on U.S. charts at 51. It did make it to number 13 on the U.K. charts. And I think it's impossible to understate the late 70s Sabbaths, the way they were affected by a confluence of heavy drug use cultural forces, and both business and personal issues within the band. These were very challenging times, and I think we hear that documented on these albums. So, Nolan, I'm curious, very curious, to hear your thoughts about technical ecstasy. What you got? I would say this is Tony's production masterpiece. I think the production value is so creative. It's one of those albums that you want to listen to with headphones and listen for the stereo imaging, the you know, guitars in a left channel and the right channel and just things moving around. I think he did a really interesting creative job. I think the songwriting isn't as strong and I don't think that is anyone's fault. You know, I'm not going to blame Jez or anything because I think he, he added a lot of interesting things, but I think the band was starting to fracture at this point. Ozzy is thinking about his solo album and, and they had this idea like, hey, let's do a, 
a rock opera based on Iron Man. Like, I mean, it's very kind of grasping at straws at this point. Yeah, like it's weird. So the, the term heavy metal had only been around for a couple of years as a genre label, and yet it's already being attacked. <laughs> and and they, they never really liked the label anyways. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's them saying, well, we don't have to do another album like Sabotage. You know, we've already done this. Let's move on to something different. So you have like this funky Stevie Wonder clavinet sort of sound and you've got all these different things and the, hey, let's put on a ballad and have Bill sing. It was it's almost their like best. A little... <laughs> it's like, well, why not? It That's terrible. Sorry, I didn't yeah, say that. Yeah, I, I, no, yeah, I, 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 I intensely dislike it's all right, actually. That's oh, yeah. And so this was, this is what I alluded to earlier. I said, you know, you start having other songwriting mm. to, to perhaps the detriment. And I think right. that's what happens here. The lyrics seem less uh, inspired. Right. Doesn't he, uh, Geezer seems pretty much totally detached from his lyric writing duties. At the, like these songs are pretty phoned in. Well, I think it's because Ozzy was writing some more lyrics. As well. Oh, is that true? Well, Rock and Roll Doctor, I'm pretty sure, is all Yes, there's a Ozzy. song called Rock and Roll Doctor. It's not a good uh, song. No, well, that's those, those are Ozzy's lyrics. Uh, oh. so, I call, it, I call that song Kiss Sabbath. Mid-70s, right? Yeah. So we've you've got kiss you've got journey was emerging at this right. time so you've got these other things now she's gone you have another That's great, i love that that sounds so you've got a ballad but the string orchestra so yeah that that's trying different things. solo material actually like that song sounds very much sort of forward thinking oh, in a way that uh, yeah the other yeah. stuff is. No, I think Dirty Women is the clear standout track. I think right. that's quite good. I mean, and I think the they realize that, that too. And that's when right. they play. Right. Yeah. That's <laughs> the one that they actually the toured, right? Like the only yeah. one. Another band that really comes to mind with this album is Pink Floyd. I hear like all oh, moving yeah. parts stand yeah. still. I know it's funky, you know, it's got funk influences, but it's got that very much that English sort of yeah. prog funk. Play. Yes. Yeah. 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 For sure. Yeah. Um, but ironically, I mean, recorded in Miami. <laughs> it some kind of feels recorded in Miami somehow. I don't know what I don't know what it is about it. I think they were at the beach a lot during during this recording session. Yeah, I think they were, and I think Tony was in the studio, getting it, frustrated at the other guys. Yeah, it was Tony and Jez, right? I mean, a lot of this is just Tony and Jez woodshedding. Yeah. I don't think I played you anything for this album. Yeah, I was on. definitely telegraphing. <laughs> I mean. It's an album worth, look, I don't like this album as a totality. I don't think it's terrible. I'm not trying to say that. It's just like, it's not, it's not my, this is not my kind of music anymore. Black Sabbath are doing really interesting, thoughtful things. They're just, you know, you won't change me. Actually, that's it. That's still my kind of music. Like that's a Black Sabbath sounding song, but they, they tweak it. Like the keyboards, like there's just some things going on, even on the songs that I really like that just sort of lose me a little bit at this point. Yeah. But that's okay. You know, they were trying, they were trying to figure it out. I think it was a hard, hard time for metal and, and, and hard rock bands and stuff. And yeah. Sabbath were caught in the middle of that. What if we thought about it this way? What if we think about technical ecstasy was, will serve the same function as volume four did. It was like, okay, let's do something different mm -hmm. with whereas volume four, it worked and it didn't quite work. Right. With technical X, because again, it's the, the band is fractured. Ozzy's doing this, his rock and roll doctor lyrics or whatever. <laughs> Here's an important part of a producer. A lot of times people think the producer as an engineer, which often they are, but often these roles are, are very different. 
I think they needed a producer to say, no, we're not going to do it's all right. No, we're not doing rock and roll doctor. And Dirty Woman, which is a, it's a good song. It's over seven minutes long. That song does not need to be over seven minutes long. Like, I think that's a I think that's a great, thoughtful, progressive, hard rock song. The length starts to seem bloated. The well, well, yeah, the solos a bit. That's what really takes it off to them. Because there's a I lot just, of cool sections. There's that little syncopated middle section. R- super cool. Yeah, it's good stuff. It's just, you feel like an editor was called for for, for this entire period of Sabbath. All right, any other technical ecstasy facts and figures before we move on to the grand finale? Oh, I think we're All good. right. And so we reach the end of the line. The final album of Ozzy's first tenure with Black Sabbath was 1978's Never Say Die, with an exclamation point. That's the die, uh, which was recorded <laughs> in Chile, Toronto, Canada, between January and May of 1978. Probably the most important bit of background for this album is that Ozzy actually left the band before they, they, they started working on it. And the, the songwriting process began with a new singer, Dave Walker, formerly of Savoy Brown and Fleetwood Mac. So obviously Ozzy did eventually return and recorded the album and toured with the band. But I think the fact that he refused to sing on the final two tracks on the album, Breakout and Swing the Chain, probably say something about where the sort of artistic and personal relationship between Ozzy and the rest of the band was at this point. And I will also note that the supporting tour for Never Say Die was famously the one in which a young and very hungry Van Halen opened for the band and famously frequently blew them off the stage, according to a lot of contemporary reports. Nolan, we have reached the final destination in our epic and magical journey. So we're gonna bring it home with discussion of the complicated and oft maligned final Sabbath album of the 1970s. What you got on Never Say Die? I actually really enjoy this album. I wouldn't say all of it, well, <laughs> you said it, it would, uh, for technical ecstasy, needed an editor. This, I feel like they just needed more material to work from. And I think they just said, like, well, this is all we got, and this is what we're putting out. In other words, like, well, Ozzy's not going to sing on this, so we're going to make this an instrumental. Ozzy's not going to sing on this, so we'll have Bill sing. And Swinging the Chain is put rightly put at the very end of the album. It's not that it's a bad song, but it's just... Ozzy was not productive at the time. According to my notes, Swinging the Chain, quote, probably the single worst Sabbath song of the decade. (laughs) I'm not a fan. Uh, And obviously Ozzy wasn't a fan either. Yeah. Well, there's also some great stuff on the album. Shockwave. Oh, Shockwave's awesome. That's great. Yeah. Um, I think Johnny Blade is super cool. Uh, I love the synth work on Johnny Blade. That song reminds me very much of Bowie, actually. I think there's some definitely 70s Bowie influences on that one. I think they're, they're, they're again, trying that more pop sound. You've got a hard road with, like, the whole background vocals. They're going for that Ameriprog or even the corporate rock sound. Tony, well, I guess the whole band, other than Ozzy, apparently was into Foreigner at the time. And so they're just, just... looking for new sounds to do. And, and look, the, even the sound, the register where Tony's playing his guitar, he's playing up higher on the neck. He's playing on the, 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 the upper strings, the higher, thinner strings. They're no longer detuning to C sharp. They're tuning back on E standard. Uh, that goes back actually to technical ecstasy. And this was more of a, well, it's because they're using a keyboard player. 
That's mm -hmm. actually oh, why right. they yeah, did that. Sure. But, but poor Ozzy had to sing everything up a minor third. Yeah, I hear some rough things about the, the resultant vocal performances. Yeah, so, it, I mean, it's, it wasn't fair. So already he was singing his very highest register. Now he's being expected to sing a minor third higher. It wasn't going to happen. So he's kind of set up for failure, to be perfectly honest. And so, yeah, I think you have some great Sabbath songs. Perhaps Junior's Eyes may be one of their best songs from this album. It's a right. great composition, the vocal performance. The lyrics are just heart-wrenching. It's about the loss of... Ozzy's father. So Geezer. But that was but, that was a song they started with Dave Walker, right? Yes. And if you hear it, Dave Walker's version, it's not interesting at all. <laughs> it's, it's pretty dorky. There's that live performance, right? It falls very flat. Yeah. You put Ozzy in there, hugely different. That you know, if if that might be, come to think of it, the best example of Ozzy knowing how to write a good melody. Junior's eyes. Listen to the original version and the the album version yes i think that, that song i i think that it's a very like very memorable great a really well written song that song to me suffers a little bit from at least as a heavy metal guy it's got very much just like a prog rocky sort of arrangement to it mm -hmm. symptomatic of what was going on with sab at the time but it is a really nice song now air dance is probably my favorite sabbath song ever <laughs> well we have so much to talk about here okay so this, this will actually be, this will be our last instrumental break we're going to listen to Air Dance, which is probably a song that many of our listeners will not be familiar with. So do you want to set them up for this one? Yeah. Okay. Oh, geez. <laughs> well, for me, it's the, the piano work is really nice. So Don Airy. Right, right. Um, we have a different different keyboardist on himself. Yeah. So he, he comes in, plays some really nice piano work, nice textural things that works in and around Ozzy's vocal lines. And that, and then we get to the solo section, and it's like we've moved into Prague territory. <laughs> so we've kind of almost have like a Latin rock feel from Bill and Geezer. And then we have this guitar part. And if you listen carefully, it's doubled by synthesizer, note for note. For years, I thought it was uh, just a, an effect on the guitar. And then there's a couple moments where I'm like, wait a minute, the keyboard does something a little bit different there. He holds out for a bar and then comes back in and I go, oh, that's actually a synth player. So he must have, you know, Tony must have recorded the solo. Don must have transcribed it or learned it or whatever, and then doubled it. So it's this like extremely impressive wow. synth work from Don. Yeah, uh, awesome. And the lyrics are interesting too. Um, so just to kind of put to you in this, this older woman that looks back on her life. And so I think lyrically it's strong. I think the performance is absolutely fantastic. Is it a heavy metal song? No, <laughs> but, but again, like I said about Paranoid, and this is true for any band, just because it's a heavy metal band doesn't mean every song in their repertoire is going to be heavy metal. So if you look at it from the perspective of like, I want a whole album full of heavy metal songs, Sabbath is never going to give that to you. They've really never done. They've always given you at least something that's would never be categorized as heavy metal. But are there some heavy metal elements in the song? Absolutely. There is a heavy riff in there. So they... They kind of got all these different strands of things happening and then it comes into focus and then, then you've got a heavy metal whiff. So it gives you, for what I, I, I would say, the best of both worlds. 
you've got this really creative jazz fusion. So yeah, let's let's listen to this and keep all of that in mind. All right, let's do it. One last time. So this one is not to be missed. This is Air Dance from Black Sabbath's Never Say Die album. Especially if you've never heard this song, do check it out. There is a link provided in the show notes. And so give it a listen and come on back for the final segment of our season finale. Okay, so Air Dance is a very different, very different Black Sabbath song, but I think wholly illustrative of where they were at at the moment. They were really playing with all these different influences, all these different timbres, all this different stuff. Now, I'm please don't take this the wrong way. I think you know this. I do not love this song myself, but this is progressive rock jazz. Like it's a synthesis of stuff that it really is not in my wheel. I'm not a jazz musician. I'm not a progressive rocker. John, what are, what are your thoughts on here? It also wasn't my favorite either, but in defense of it, the, the element that stood out to me the most were the, the jazz influences. And as an idiot, I'll go ahead and say this. I don't particularly care for jazz. So this was not not the type of song that was ever going to appeal to me. That being said, that's not to say it's a bad song. It's clearly got a lot of very, very smart writing going on in its construction. It's just not my genre of taste. And fairly virtuosic playing, too, which is not always something you associate with Sabbath. But you had mentioned, Bill, in the keyboard playing, that's some pretty virtuosic embellishment playing, you know, in the verses and what. The classical element, too, to that, that piano. Right, right. Oh, yeah. So I wouldn't say not just the jazz, but because Don Airy, he's familiar with all that literature, the 19th century list and so on. Mm-hmm. You know, Sabbath is definitely in a very different place on this album. I, I, for me, technical ecstasy versus, you know, I, so I don't love either of these albums. I actually love the song, like the opener, Never Say Die, is, is I don't know if it's one of my very favorite Black Sabbath songs, but I really I love that song. There's, there's definitely some, and Junior's Eyes, I think, again, I have issues with the production, but it's a great song. I think for me, there's kind of higher highs and lower lows on Never Say Die. What really kills Never Say Die for me and what really like puts a ellipses instead of an exclamation point on the end of Black Sabbath 70s is the last two songs. Breakout, I truly dislike. It just does not work for me on any level. And Swinging the Chain, both those songs, which again, I guess Ozzy heard, was like, nope. I'm out of here. I just, yeah. not, I, I can't, that's a journey on which I cannot go with Black Sabbath, unfortunately. So Bill and Tony both share the, the love of jazz. Mm-hmm. And so it's like the, it became, although it was always a common thread, it was always subverted to, oh, I don't know, maybe just the genesis of an idea where now it's like, oh, let's put it in the forefront. And, then, and that's when Ozzy's like, no, 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 I don't like this. Now, if you listen to live recordings, Tony will be playing these long solos and you would have a whole jazz section, right? And it would apparently would drive Ozzy nuts because he, <laughs> he, would, he would walk off stage and he's like, what is this jazz at a Black Sabbath concert? Like he just did not like, you know, and I'm sure, you know, to a point, Ozzy appreciated jazz. In fact, he even would listen to those early jazz records with the guys in the late 60s when they were you know starting out where ozzy would he wanted to separate it whereas bill and tony wanted to fuse that in there and and geezer always seemed very open-minded to to all of that and he you know jazz like things but he was never really a jazz player not like bill and tony 
had that. So here's that fracturing of the band where, you know, Ozzy's out. Now, we could say Never Say Die is the end of this, but you got to remember, Ozzy was a part of the writing sessions for the next album, Heaven and Hell. Right, which is great, which, I mean, that obviously what Heaven and Hell became, I think, was probably quite a bit different than what it started off as. But yeah, Ozzy toured Never Say Die and then started writing Heaven and Hell and then vacated the band. I've actually heard a recording of Children of the Sea with Ozzy singing it. Oh my gosh. Does it sound this? I mean, obviously it's going to sound different vocally, but. Oh, much of the song was the same, I would say. You know, obviously the lyrics and melodies and things were different structurally, but like a lot of songs in their infancy, they were. Things were cut, things were reordered. Um, in fact, there is even some bits that reminded me of some parts that ended up on Blizzard of Oz, by the way. Ah, that's interesting. That was really interesting to hear. I think it's easy to say, oh, never say that, that's it. But let's just remember that Ozzy was still around into the... But So if, if you thought Never Say Die was ineffective as songwriting, it got even worse. And that's when they said, okay, Ozzy's got to go. He's just not and, contributing. He's not doing anything. And so ends the 1970s domination artistically, and at least for some time, popularly of Sabbath. And obviously some very, very cool things to come in the 1980s. Actually, some of Sabbath's best work, Ozzy's incredible solo work. But that is a discussion for another time. Alas. Oh my goodness. I think we've all learned a whole bunch today. Mostly I think we've learned that Black Sabbath is goddamn magical. We've also learned that (laughs) Nolan is the awesomest. So Nolan, thank you so very much for making our first season finale incredibly special and for sharing your tremendous knowledge with us today. You are the best. Oh, thank you. There's nothing more enjoyable than talking about Sabbath. (laughs) I agree completely. We should do this again sometime. Please go out and purchase your very own copy of Nolan's fabulous book, Experiencing Black Sabbath, A Listener's Companion. There is a link in the show notes, so go and click it. Nolan, thank you again for joining us. We love you bunches. Great. I hope to be back. Let's talk about some Dio era Sabbath. How about that? Dio! I love it. (laughs) John, holy shit. We did it. Season number one is in the books. How are you feeling? I feel like I really learned something today. Ah, you finally were taught by a true teacher. Mm-hmm. You look wiser, you look older. I feel wiser and older. Mm-hmm. So what are you going to be doing with your time off from the Heavy Metal 101 podcast? I'll be recording my other podcast. Ah, your other podcast. <laughs> myself, I'm going to be stumbling around aimlessly, mumbling to myself about various heavy metal topics during this time off. I might also do a few crossword puzzles and maybe work on a bit of coursework towards the eventual acquisition of my PhD. Just so everyone knows, the plan is for us to take just a couple of months off to recharge before returning with season number two. My personal plan is to utilize the peace and quiet of summer to write and record much of our next season, so I expect we'll be back with new episodes by the start of August at the very latest, but perhaps considerably earlier in the summer. I don't know, but either way, we'll keep everyone posted via social media. Uh, Speaking of which, John, could you tell the nice people how to find us on social media? I can. We are on Facebook at Heavy Metal 101 Podcast, on Instagram at Heavy Metal 101 Podcast, and on Twitter at Heavy underscore 101. That one's rather pithy, no? Is that how that word works? Yeah, pithy. Short, sweet, succinct. You can also reach us via email with questions, comments, or 
pithy episode ideas at heavymetal101podcast at gmail.com or you can leave us a voice message at anchor.fm slash heavymetal101podcast. And please do take some time to rate and review us on iTunes and to tell your friends and family all about our scrappy little show. If you like the show, maybe share a link to one of our episodes online, and then perhaps we'll have John mow your lawn or take you out for a night of drinking and dance. Does that sound good to you? Uh, drinking and dance with me would be a spectacular reward for anyone. <laughs> I think it would be incredible. Absolutely incredible, and I plan to photo document it on my forthcoming YouTube page, <laughs> Drinking and Dancing with John. <laughs> Anywho, it has been so much fun spending time with all of you during our first season. A super special thanks to my fabulous co-host and to everyone who has listened to the show thus far. All of you are incredibly wonderful. Uh, John, have you got any final words of wisdom for our listeners before we shuffle off to Buffalo? Go check out Nolan's book. Ooh, check out the book. Yeah, you should definitely do that. I really do own it. I really do love it. It's awesome. Fantastic. We will be back before you know it. Meanwhile, thanks for listening to Heavy Metal 101. Season 1 is done! Ha!